Welcome back to The Money with Katie Show, rich girls and boys. And not just The Money with Katie Show, but our first bonus episode, a Mother's Day special from yours truly, because who could be more qualified to talk about motherhood than someone who doesn't have any kids, right? Right? We wrote and recorded this episode a couple weeks before the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court opinion was leaked. So while it's not a part of this childcare deep dive, I want to acknowledge the economic impact that it might have on families and women moving forward. But that is a topic for another day. I will warn you, though, in some ways, this episode feels like the healthcare episode in the sense that it's explanatory of why things are broken and expensive and a little bit lighter on individual solutions, but I think you'll understand why that is shortly. And frankly, I don't love providing this type of information without providing actionable advice or tactical things that you can do, but that's kind of the reality of the issue. We are trying to solve big public service problems with individual solutions, and it just doesn't work very well. I will attempt to give some advice at the end and ways to approach the issue, but To be clear, this is more of a policy issue than something you can finagle your way around, short of making a shit ton of money, which is, to be fair, the antidote for most problems in the United States. This is more an exploration of the economic state of things, and as a result, the government will get brought into the conversation. Of course, I wanted to take this opportunity to dunk on our lack of social safety nets in the United States. Just kidding. I really want to use the opportunity to acknowledge the absolutely unbelievable lifestyles led by women in 21st century America who are working full-time jobs, then coming home to a literal child in their house. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. Okay, so I imagine that our days diverge right after our morning alarms when y'all tap into some serious superhero shit. Moving at supersonic speeds to prepare for your day, Putting on your superhero outfit. Blasting off into the sky with Junior in one arm and little Sally in the other. And with no time to waste, teleporting to work. Crunching those numbers, fulfilling those orders, and getting shit done. Then gathering up the kids and heading home where you can rest. But wait! Time to schedule those appointments before everything closes. I know touchstone phones are antiquated and you're probably doing those online, but it is a podcast, people. Anyway, don't forget Sally's soccer practice. Oh, and little Junior needs help with his homework. And you do this all so selflessly so that your kids can be, well, kids. Finally, the end of the day. Recharge those powers and rest, Mom. You earned it. (laughs) 
Welcome back. So as I was saying, you people are doing the Lord's work and you are paying through the nose for your childcare costs just so you can go continue working to make the money to pay for the childcare. And anyway, like I said, I'm not a mom, though I hope to be someday, probably. And the one resonant sentiment that I heard across all 67 rich girl mom submissions from the career women in my inbox who also happen to be mothers is this. When you're at work, you feel like a bad mom. And when you're being a mom, you feel like a bad employee or business owner. So in other words, it is a Molotov cocktail of feelings of inadequacy on all fronts. So I was curious about why this is and if it's pervasive in other countries too. Spoiler alert, not so much. I was also curious about why childcare is so prohibitively expensive and seems to be kind of broken in our country, operating in this weird space where the cost of care is insanely high, but the childcare workers are underpaid and the margins are super thin. It didn't really add up. And the TLDR is that it costs a lot of money to run a childcare center because of regulations that require a certain number of staff for every few children. Now, this does ensure quality and safety, so it's not an area where we want to skimp, but man, it does make it hard to be profitable as a childcare center despite charging a shit ton of money. That lack of profitability, by the way, is important for a later point that involves Elon Musk, so stay tuned. Lastly, I wanted to hear from actual mothers who are making it work and create a space where you can maybe not feel alone in the struggle. Some of what I was saying earlier may resonate with you, and, and maybe if you're not a mother yet but you're considering it, I think this conversation will be super eye-opening and potentially help you prepare for what's to come financially and professionally. I see how people do things differently, and I don't really know anybody who would say that it's a walk in the park. It's obviously very rewarding to be able to be a parent and have a career at the same time, but it's challenging. And I think that's just something I wasn't really prepared for, just how much it kind of takes out of you every day. I mean, like I said, you get a lot of positive things out of being able to do both. And I feel very grateful to even be in this position where I had the option to pay for daycare so I could continue working. Um, I know a lot of people don't, I feel very grateful for that privilege, but it's hard no matter what, no matter how you do it. That's really the only thing I know for sure. As always, we're not going to shy away from the complex today or the stuff that might be hard to talk about, like this idea that the whole two working parents thing isn't good for kids or the fact that some childless people take great exception to their tax dollars potentially going toward childcare costs because they're not my kids. And side note, I always find that opposition really hilarious because a, we all already pay for public schools with our tax dollars, regardless of whether or not we have children that attend them, because it's considered good for society as a whole that children receive education. And this idea that children should be the sole responsibility of the parents ignores the fact that children are beneficial to all of society. If everyone decided to stop having kids because they are becoming prohibitively expensive, society would cease to exist. So just don't have kids is not exactly a strategy that scales. Like, even if I don't have kids, I'm going to benefit when I'm 85 from the fact that you chose to have children because your kid might be the person who runs my assisted living center or replaces my hip or drives me around in my town car. We all benefit from young people in the workforce and creating new humans is the first step toward having a young person who's able to work and contribute to the economy. 
capitalism. In short, we need kids if we want the economy to function. So even from the most selfish angle, children still benefit everyone. So let's start with the biggest question. Why is childcare today so convoluted? The reality is that childcare in the United States is what's considered a market failure. The true cost of providing childcare is higher than the parents, aka the customers who need the product, can afford to pay in most cases. So in other words, it costs more to provide the service than those who need the service can feasibly afford. The profit margins on childcare centers are an average of, are you ready for this? between 1% and 8%, meaning between 92 and 99% of their income goes to paying for their costs, leaving the profit margin of, yeah, between 1% and 8%. It's not great. They are basically unprofitable businesses. And in a capitalist system, is there an incentive to get into business in a field that is basically unprofitable? Well, no, not really. Now, the way we solve for this in other parts of our society is by making necessary services public goods. We make them public services. Firefighters, police, libraries, stoplights, sewage systems, roads, bridges, public transportation. These are all considered public goods that are necessary infrastructure for a flourishing economy and society. There's an argument to be made that childcare is infrastructure in the same way because it's not an optional good. It creates a better society for everyone when parents have trustworthy, quality care for their kids. And when something is considered a public service, public funding comes into play. Tax dollars pay for it. Now, the U.S. doesn't do this with childcare. They treat it like a private enterprise that's up to the individual to solve for themselves. So ultimately, you have this untenable market failure where the cost of providing the service costs more than people can pay for it. But was it always this way? Has childcare always been in a state of market failure? I was really curious. Now, it wasn't. During World War II, they basically needed women working in factories to build tanks and shit. So to solve for the fact that nobody was watching the kids, the U.S. government provided subsidized, safe, quality daycare for these women's children. And it also helped with equality because Black women stopped doing domestic labor in white people's homes in droves because they could make better money in factories. It's kind of wild. We made it work as a country because women in the workforce were considered necessary. And it did not come from some big public policy change. It was added to some military bill that passed and paid for it that way. So there is precedent for this in the U.S. I I listened to a great interview on an NPR show called Consider This, where the interviewee, an expert on the topic named Elliot Haspel, he's the author of a book called Crawling Behind America's Childcare Crisis and How to Fix It. He basically said, all right, well, what's the government even for? Well, it's to provide for the challenges that we cannot solve or address on our own on an individual level. Care is one of those things. It benefits everyone because childcare basically enables everything else to happen. It's not solely in the private interest of the family. It's in the best interest of the entire society for children to have quality care and quality education, end quote. We've got the publicly funded education thing down until college, but not so much on the daycare thing. And quality public school is something that you basically have to buy your way into anyway, in the form of buying a house in a good neighborhood with a good public school system, which is usually pretty competitive and pretty expensive. So it's not 
perfect, but we definitely have something. This is why I made the joke earlier that earning a ton of money in America basically solves all your problems, but that's obviously easier said than done and also not entirely scalable. So why isn't anything being done about it? Is this where we blame one political party or the other? Well, not really, because there's actually some bipartisan support for subsidized childcare, likely because it impacts families on both sides of the aisle in the same way. The challenging part, though, as highlighted in another interview I listened to with a woman named Aizhen Poo on The Ezra Klein Show, is that most of these politicians making these decisions are very, very wealthy. The cost of quality care is still high for them, but it is easier for them to pay for it. And on a more depressing note, most of them are men. And who typically bears the brunt of childcare? The unpaid labor of middle-class women in their own homes and the underpaid labor of mostly working-class women of color in daycare centers. In other words, because these predominantly older, predominantly male politicians are not as directly impacted, it doesn't often get as much attention as it should as a policy failure. And that doesn't just hurt families and women. It hurts the economy as a whole. And that's kind of what a lot of these arguments boil down to for me. I am not an exceptionally kind and generous person. I don't want to pay half my income in taxes just to support other people because I am selfless. But because I think the economy can actually benefit quite a bit from it. I think we'd be a more productive, happier society with a higher GDP. And you'll hear why I believe that in a minute. There is an argument to be made that government spending on childcare would largely pay for itself due to the economic growth to be gained from increased female participation in the workforce and the business efficiencies to be gained from parents who aren't distracted by watching their kid while they work during the day. Infrastructure is supposed to power other industries. The roads and the bridges make it possible for you to drive to work. They are considered a public good that benefits everyone and can most effectively be paid for in this economy of scale where they're funded by tax dollars. Childcare is important in the same way. It is just as necessary for going to work that you have someone to watch your kid that you have a road to drive on. Elliot Haspel made a funny point in the interview. He said, businesses are freeloaders for not paying for this. Big corporations benefit greatly from the childcare industry because their employees have to use it in order to work. Increasing corporate taxes to pay for childcare actually makes a lot of sense. Well, we uh, spent all of our money on that superhero sound design. So here's the ad. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, welcome back. So speaking of the corporate sector, what about all that mom guilt? We all know that I cannot speak from personal experience, but the overwhelming majority of young working mothers I know express one key qualm about their situation. I feel like when I'm at work, I'm being a bad mom. And when I'm being a mom, I'm being a bad employee. And as a result, I'm never giving 100% to either. So is being a working parent bad for your kids? 
Hi, Katie. This is Maddie. I am a rich mom. As of June of last year, um, I, I gave birth to my daughter. And then I took 16 weeks of maternity leave from the, the company that I work for. Coming back after maternity leave, it was very apparent to me how precious my time had become. So I was willing to advocate really hard for myself. I mean, effectively went from making about 110 to th this year I, I should make close to about 200,000. I was very upfront with my boss about how precious I felt my time was and is. I also know I'm good at my job. If you were good at your job before you have a baby, you're gonna be good at your job after you have your baby. Um, you will still be valuable to your company, probably even more so. And your time just got a whole lot more precious. Um, so make sure that you are being paid as such. Childcare is not cheap. This year we have slated about like $21,000 aside for childcare. Being a working mom, getting paid more, the dollars add up. It does just make it so much more easier to work if you're being paid more. The Harvard Business School actually found that the opposite is true across the world. In the workplace, daughters of employed mothers across 29 countries are 1.21 times more likely to be employed, spend 44 additional minutes at work per week, are 1.29 times more likely to be in a role where they supervise others, and have higher annual earnings than daughters of mothers who did not work. This is after you control for the mother's education levels. A mother's work experience is strongly linked to her daughter's future work performance. The results were interesting for sons too. The sons of working moms spend an extra 50 minutes per week caring for their family members and hold what's described as a significantly more egalitarian gender attitude, even more so than daughters of stay-at-home moms. Now, I want to be very careful with this because it may seem like I'm condoning an attitude of disparaging someone who chose to stay home with their kids, and that is dangerous territory and not at all what I want to do. But if it does give you working moms a little reprieve to know that statistically speaking, your workforce participation is actually more likely to positively benefit your kids than screw them up, there you go. I liked this quote. Women are socialized to believe that mothers should stay home with their children, so when you separate from your kids every day for work, it can be painful. As we gradually understand that our children aren't suffering, I hope the guilt will go away. So if this shows up across 29 countries, does this mean all working moms experience mom guilt? Maybe, but the data would suggest it is substantially more pervasive in the good old U.S. of A. In the book, Making Motherhood Work by sociologist Caitlin Collins, she explains why mothers in the U.S. have it the worst. The majority of them experience crushing guilt about not being good enough in their careers and not being available for their families around the clock. But Collins says that's not really their fault. They have more demands placed on them and fewer support systems to help them. Shocking. In her research, Collins interviews 135 middle-class working mothers in the U.S., Germany, Sweden, and Italy, and she concludes the United States is an outlier among Western industrialized countries for its lack of support for working mothers. 
And I'm not saying that these other countries are perfect. They definitely have flaws too, but likely just different ones. But much like our healthcare debate, when you look at European countries, particularly France in this case, they have decided that childcare is a public service. The amount you pay for childcare in France is determined by your income. But according to Ai Poo's research, the most you would pay in France if you're in the highest income brackets would be $400 to $500 per month. AKA, if you are very wealthy, you could pay a few hundred dollars a month for childcare. I did some digging. I was not able to independently confirm that figure on a website that was written in English, but it is consistent with what I've heard from the actual French mothers I've spoken with via Money with Katie. It's worth noting that in places like Paris, it can be very hard to find spots in these childcare centers, which should come as no surprise to American parents who have to get on daycare waiting lists the moment their kid is conceived just about everywhere in the country. Aijin Pu, who is incidentally the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, had a quote I really liked. She said, childcare is the work that makes all other work possible. It is fundamental to our society. And as I learned in The Two-Income Trap, the book by Elizabeth Warren and her daughter, Amelia Warren, part of the quagmire here is that while two-income families today well, as of 2004, when the book was written, have substantially more gross income than the families of the 20th century did, with only one earner and one stay-at-home parent, they actually have less discretionary income on average than single-earner families of the past after paying for their mortgage and their healthcare costs and their childcare costs. Two of these three things are considered public services in other wealthy countries. That's both because of this idea of market failure and because rational market economics don't really work in industries wherein you don't have a choice of whether or not you want to engage with them, like healthcare, and you can't or don't make rational cost-based decisions. You may not want to pay $3,000 a month for high-quality childcare, but if the alternative is handing your kid off to some sketchy person you saw on Craigslist who charges less because they're not licensed, that is a false choice. Imagine a world where the fire department was a private enterprise. Should I let my house burn down or should I pay the $5,000 toward my firefighter deductible after paying for my $500 a month fire premiums to have access to the fire department? It would be ludicrous. Like we are happy to pay for our firefighters with our tax dollars. Warren makes a good point in the book, though. Simply subsidizing childcare for parents with a two-income household inadvertently disadvantages households that don't have two earners because one earner has decided to leave the workforce and be a stay-at-home parent, or there's only one earner because they're a single parent. Why? Well, because now that two-earner family that's taking advantage of free care has more disposable income to, I don't know, spend in a bidding war on a home in the neighborhood that has the good public school. So. In a single earner family, the parent who works in the home taking care of the children is still actively contributing and keeping that child out of the daycare system so someone else's kid can have that spot. But that means they aren't using the public subsidy. And because they don't have other income outside the home, that family now has less to work with. So Warren suggests in the book that maybe tax credits could help offset the imbalance there. But even exploring these issues in this cursory way helps illustrate why this issue is more complex than it appears at first glance. And as with most things, indiscriminately just throwing more money at the issue does not really solve it. All that's to say, though, that if you are struggling to pay for childcare, it's not because you did something wrong or because you are failing as a parent or because you should just be quitting your job and no longer contributing to the economy in the same way. 
It's because childcare is in a state of failure. And until we start thinking about it like infrastructure and applying the economies of scale with tax dollars, we are dealing with an increasingly expensive system that does not work for anyone involved, either the parents who struggle to pay for it or the providers who are underpaid because the profit margin is between 1% and 8%. It's a little bit reminiscent of how underpaid teachers are. It's just another signal from our society that we don't really value children or see them as future adults who need to be productive, healthy, well-informed citizens. Investing in children and their care and education has unbelievably high ROI as downstream consequences, but we just don't seem to see it that way. Now, let's talk about how all of this came to a head in 2020. Everything we've discussed so far sets the stage for something else, the She Session, the pandemic-induced female exodus from the workforce. Three and a half million women were pushed out of the workforce in March 2020 because of caretaking challenges. Overnight, we dropped to 1988 levels of women's workforce participation, which confirms the theory that there is a causal relationship between childcare availability and affordability and women's workforce participation. And uh, not to get all Ruth Bader Ginsburg on you, but women without purchasing power and economic independence cannot control their lives in the same way as those with it. So what happens to the economy when women leave the workforce? Well, women make up half of the American workforce. So when they are forced to leave work to care for their children, we face labor shortages, which typically drives up costs. I am probably oversimplifying here, but it's not a huge jump logically because to entice more workers, you now have to pay more. And then to retain your current margins, you have to charge more. So costs of goods and services become more expensive over time when labor shortages impact industries. And at the macroeconomic level, if our workforce participation had kept pace with countries like Norway, which has the infrastructure of paid care and paid family leave in place, our economy is estimated to have been about $1.6 trillion larger than it is today. Declining women's workforce participation has been happening slowly and steadily since the 1990s, and studies cite rising childcare costs as the reason why. This is why the answer to this problem is not straightforward, and I can't give you a few budgeting tips to solve it, because we're trying to solve an infrastructure public policy problem in the private sector with individual solutions. So for the third time, my favorite individual solution in America is making a lot of money. That's like the only thing that can help alleviate some of this pain, which is pretty messed up. And make no mistake, the private sector has been able to do some things much better. Look at Elon Musk and SpaceX. The private sector took over the space race and ushered in this new era of space travel. But Elon Musk had something that many private sector entrepreneurs do not. Hundreds of millions of dollars from exiting PayPal. He sank his entire fortune, again, hundreds of millions of dollars into SpaceX. And according to Forbes, investors sank another $14.5 billion into private space companies. Why? Because there was profit potential. And when you have a lot of capital, profit potential, and smart people, amazing things can happen. That is capitalism working. But childcare and other public services think wastewater treatment plants and police and the people who mow the grass and trim the trees in public areas 
they don't have huge profit potential. You don't want the police out looking for more customers for their jails, right? There is no profit potential in childcare because it is already pushing the brink of being too expensive to just cover the costs of an operation that satisfies regulations. No venture capitalist is going to rush in to invest in childcare and dump billions of dollars and brain power into making a maximum of 8% profit. So largely, women are the ones who suffer as they are, statistically speaking, the ones who stay home. As of 2016, men make up only 17% of all stay-at-home parents, meaning 83% of stay-at-home parents are women. Of course, these numbers are fuzzy and inexact because some same-sex couples could represent both a stay-at-home mom and a working mom in the same family, but it makes sense. As long as there's a discernible wage gap, your lower-paid parent is going to be the one who likely chooses to stay home. And as of 2018, a prudential study found that roughly 30% of married women are the primary breadwinner in their homes, meaning the other 70% are men, meaning that in 70% of families, the women are the ones who would likely stay home if one parent had to leave work. It's a bit of a vicious cycle in a way, because if you choose to stay home until your child reaches school age and then you go back to work, you've delayed your career development as a result, which results in lower wages, which results in being the parent who's more likely to stay home in the future. Hi, Katie and Rich Moms. My name is Meg, and I have two boys, three and a half and seven and a half years old. And I am now just at the point where I can finally see the payoff of my years working. It's been now eight years since I first gave birth. And it's been really tough. And almost all of my other teacher friends quit and they decided to stay at home with their family. And I honestly, I was really jealous because teaching is stressful and the paycheck is pretty bad. For the first five years, pretty much my entire paycheck went to paying for childcare. It didn't feel worth it. But I'm here to tell you that now that I'm past that, my youngest will be in school full-time in three years. We pay about $40,000 a year for our amazing childcare. When I don't have that anymore, I'm going to feel so wealthy. And we're going to take that money and we're going to invest it, of course. But the years of having to have such intense financial restraint has resulted in a philosophy about spending that I don't think I would have adopted had I not been so frugal during those early child raising days. And then on top of that, I am a public school teacher and I also work for a non-for-profit, which means I can contribute to both a 403B and a 457. And so because of that, the tax advantages just from my poor paying job are actually huge. And being able to harness that over 30 years, I'm on pace to retire at the age of 57 with a very, very healthy retirement account. I think you get a lot of feedback from well-intentioned parents saying, oh, you can never get those early childhood years back. Spend as much time with your kids as you can. Well, for a lot of us, for financial reasons, that actually isn't the best decision. And so I'm just writing in to give all those middle earners a little bit of maybe inspiration that it really can be worth it, even though it feels in the moment like it's not and all that stress. And I am coming from a place now where I really feel the financial security that I have made, helped to make for my family over these past eight years. To be very clear, I'm not trying to say that being a stay-at-home parent isn't a good thing. 
In fact, I kind of hope that the amount of money my husband and I have saved before we have kids will enable both of us to be stay-at-home parents for a little while if we want to. Or we could move to Norway or Finland or Sweden or the UK or France or any of the other wealthy nations that sponsor paid family leave. But these numbers are just the reality of how these statistics seem to shake out right now in the U.S., though the percentage of women who are the primary breadwinners in their homes is growing and the number of stay-at-home dads is growing and in some cities women are out earning men, we're trending in the right direction. But until we figure out this whole childcare thing, we are putting economic pressure on one parent to leave the workforce. And whether that is the male or the female parent, you're still creating a negative economic impact for both that family and the economy at large as fewer people can afford to work. That is the funny thing about this conversation. I feel like we focus on some of these things as being altruistically better for families. Like, oh, let's be nice with our tax dollars and let's provide better services with the implication that it'll be bad for the economy or it'll raise our taxes so we all have less money or something of that nature. When in reality, these types of policies help boost economies and they make them more productive because it puts systems in place that make it easier for people to work outside the home. This is why Sweden has better workforce participation than the U.S. and lower unemployment, despite the fact that they have generally higher taxes because the supportive infrastructure is in place to make working easier for people with families. We may not pay as much in taxes, though if you live in places like New York City or California, your taxes will actually be pretty commensurate with the people in Sweden. But we are spending such a substantial chunk of our discretionary income on things like childcare that we have net less take-home pay. I'm not sure if you remember the episode I did a while back about whether or not the obsession with financial independence is a sign of a problem in the United States and whether hustle culture is just born out of a fundamental need for security that's not being met, which is super cute. But the average Swede has more take-home pay than the average American despite paying higher taxes. So yeah. But anyway, the reality is that women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And I think it's taken these issues that have been issues for the last century and made them more acute for everyone all at once, which has silver lining called more attention to them. So what does this mean for your money? Financially, the impact is huge for families. They can't save for retirement because they're paying for childcare, let alone think about saving for that kid's college. Again, not to twist the knife, but college is another service that is considered a public good in most of Europe. I will see you in Stockholm this summer, and I have partially already decided that I'm not coming back. The reality is that we make it very difficult for people to be parents in this country if they are not already wealthy. And women tend to be the ones who bear the economic brunt from a career perspective. But make no mistake, it affects the entire family. And yes, families figure it out. They cut back. They stop saving. They go into debt. They make it work. But in many cases, they are really scraping by and feel that stress and precariousness every single day. Many families do not have the option to be single income to say nothing of the pressure on the person working to retain that income and health insurance policy. And many times both incomes are required to support the fixed expenses and have anything left over to save. So it's not like having one parent staying home is even economically viable in a lot of cases. I wanted to get a sense of how the burden of childcare actually impacts people beyond the ones I read about on the internet. 
All right, so a few things that jumped out at me while prepping for this show. Number one, I'm going to start with one for people who are not parents yet, but may want to be someday, because really the best I can offer from a personal perspective is how we're thinking about it. Start saving for this stuff now. I know it doesn't feel very fun, but when we talk about individual solutions, this is one of the best ones. Prevention of the problem before it happens. My husband and I are trying desperately to get to the point where we are financially independent or work optional before we have kids so we can stay home with them while they're little and not have to pay for childcare outside of the occasional babysitter. Or maybe we'll work part-time and stagger our employment so we can take turns. But the idea is that you work harder and save more when you're childless so that you have a really good buffer once you have kids and either can use that money or you can afford to stop saving for a while because you've got enough invested already. I'm honestly not even going to attempt to put a number on this. I would just think of it like an orientation toward saving and like doing the work ahead of time financially. The second one is something that I heard a lot in my conversations with parents of more than one kid. So because daycare typically charges per child, one thing that came up as a more cost-effective solution was a nanny share. So our first childcare setup was with my first son. We did a nanny share, which I'm a huge fan of. So what that looked like, it was a full-time nanny with two kids, our family's child and another family's child. And so what's great about that, back four years ago in Hoboken, it was 15 an hour for one child or 18, around 18, 17 an hour for two children. So we get to split that cost. So some of the positives, it was $4.50 a week for childcare, which was pretty on par with daycare at the time. My child had a best friend. He's still best friends with her to this day. We got to switch houses, so alternate houses. So every other week, our house was a little more quiet. And there are some challenges too, because you have to find a family that aligns with your values, that you get along with, can have open communication with. We were lucky to have best friends to do that with. There's also some trickiness with illness. If one kid is sick, you don't want to get the other kid sick. And nannies do take vacation, have sick days, so you'll need to have backup care during that time. So the way it sounds like it works is you may have two kids and you may have friends in the neighborhood who also have two kids. You and your friends would basically hire a nanny who would take care of your four collective children in your home or in their home and you would split the cost. When you're dealing with multiples of children, it tends to be more cost effective, I have heard. Again, can't confirm independently, but that seems to be the thematic piece that continues through all these stories. Now, finding a nanny is maybe another story. I know my brother-in-law's family had a hell of a time finding one right now, but it's potentially something to look into if you haven't yet or if you're having a hard time with the daycare system. I am the mother to a one and a four-year-old. And even with our flexible jobs in our post-pandemic world, the only way we are able to make childcare work is with the help of an au pair who is something that we can accommodate because we had the space for that live-in childcare option. The au pair program is administered by companies through the State Department. It's part of the J-1 visa program. And despite healthy incomes, childcare still takes about 70% of my take-home income. So we try to consider it just a season. Um, And our au pair is French. And while she loves her life in the U.S. and being part of our family, she has said that she would absolutely never live 
in the U.S. when she has children because our child care support and general support for parents is absolutely abysmal. So that's how we're getting it done. This third one is a little more uh, wheels off, I guess. I don't know. It's less professional, so to speak, and more like taking advantage of your network. But when I was a kid, my mom had two neighborhood friends who were stay-at-home moms. So my mom paid the stay-at-home moms a hundred bucks a week or 200 bucks a week, I think, to watch me with their own kids and then would return the favor on the weekends when the stay-at-home moms would want to go out. Again, this is wheels off, unregulated, kind of random, but it's this idea of if it really takes a village to raise children, rely on your community. If you have friends who stay at home or maybe they stay at home part-time or maybe you're the stay-at-home parent, this could be a good option to either make some extra money if that's you and potentially have your kids be entertained by someone else's kids, which sounds like a win-win to me. Uh, I really loved the women who watched me. I was best friends with their kids and it definitely was the preferred choice on my part to my eventual daycare center that I had to attend when both of those moms moved out of state. Now, the fourth one is another option you've probably considered or tried, but I'm going to throw it out there just in case. If you have family that you think would be down to help you, like parents, close aunts and uncles, siblings, whatever, it might be worth moving to be closer to them if your job is remote. Now, I know this one's tough because most daycare centers do require you to pay for full-time care, even if you don't use it all the time. So it may not be a super tenable option, but a lot of the people I've spoken with who are not crushed by childcare costs have one thing in common. Their own parents or siblings are watching their kids for them. I just wanted to talk about how childcare costs have caused us to change so many things about our lives. We have three children, three and a half, two, and four months. When our first child was born, we were living in the San Francisco area. Childcare in the San Francisco area is a, for an infant is a minimum of $2,000 a month. So when we had our first daughter, we did a nanny share and we paid $2,000 a month for that. At the time, our take-home income was about $7,000 a month. So that put us going on 30% of our take-home pay was going toward childcare. It was a big burden, but we made it work. And when our second child was born, we were looking at a child care bill of $3,600 to $4,000 a month, which was going to be totally impossible. That was going to be like half or more of our take-home pay. We decided we had to figure out some other kind of solution. It just wasn't going to work. Right at that time, my mother-in-law was retiring, and we realized we could rent her an apartment in Oakland for about $2,000 a month plus utilities. Even renting her what seemed like a really expensive studio apartment was still half the cost of childcare. In the process of looking for an apartment, we actually started looking for different rental homes and we found a rental home with an in-law unit. So we were all able to move in together and she was able to have a unit within our house. With the increase in rent and utilities and different things, that put us right back about at like $2,000 a month for childcare for our two kids. We had kind of adapted to that, even though it's still a ton of money in childcare. That worked until our third kid was born. Right at the same time our third child was born, my daughter started preschool and she was attending a half day preschool five days a week. And that was about $1,500 with the increase in rent and whatnot. And then preschool put us right back about like $3,500 a month for childcare for our kids. And our take-home pay had increased. So it was about $8,000 a month. But still, that's 44% of our income was going to childcare costs. Totally impossible. So we decided to move to Portland, Oregon. 
we had changed our entire budget, how we used our money. We changed our living arrangement. We had a mother-in-law move in with us, and now we've changed a city, all because the cost of childcare is so high, and it just became totally unmanageable. And so I just wanted to say to people who are in the same situation, this is not your fault. It feels impossible because it is impossible. The system is not set up to support working people with kids. The cost is astronomical. You're spending usually at a minimum 30% of your take-home pay on childcare, and that's crazy. You feel like it's crazy because it is crazy. Advice that I got and what we ended up doing is be creative. So, you know, we changed our living arrangement. We moved in with family, like, etc. I also think that we shouldn't have to live in a system where the way that you figure out how to pay for childcare is be creative. I empathize so much with you. I hope that you too can find a creative solution. They live close to family members who help. And this kind of throws it back to like, oh, maybe this is the way it is supposed to be, question mark. It takes a village. I don't know. I know it's not possible for everyone. Not everyone has parents or siblings who are able and willing to help. And some people have to live in a different city for work. But if you're in a position where you are truly being crushed under the weight of your childcare costs and you can do your job from anywhere or you're feeling desperate and you have family somewhere in the country that's willing to help you, it might be worth trying to see if there's an arrangement you can make or a combination of these things to take some of the financial burden off your shoulders. There's a chance that my husband and I will live in the same city as my father and mother-in-law and my brother and sister-in-law and their two kids in the next decade. And part of me is kind of like, okay, like it actually might be kind of nice to have everyone in one spot where we can help each other out with taking care of each other's kids if any of us decide not to work. But again, as with all of these things, these are feeble attempts at individual solutions for problems that really do need to be solved with policy. So if you're frustrated that it's not helpful to you or that none of this stuff applies to you, I am sorry, and that is valid. I just couldn't end this episode without wrapping up a few solution-oriented considerations. Some parents I talked with seem to think that because daycare is only necessary in the first few years of life before their kid goes into the public school system, that it's something you can kind of grit your teeth and get through. But others were quicker to remind me that usually that just means aftercare becomes an expense to bear since, fun, school ends before work does, and that daycare costs are replaced by fees for sports, camps, and other expenses. Maybe having a kid in this country really is just that expensive. And on that note, happy Mother's Day. All right, y'all, I know that was a lot, but I hope if you didn't get a tangible solution for the issue from this episode, you still leave feeling like your frustrations around the topic are valid, and most importantly, that you are not alone. That's all for this week. I will see you next week, same time, same place on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by the fabulous Nick Torres and me. The brilliant Kate Brandt provided additional reporting and fact-checking, and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Bean Dog is our chief of Wolf, who literally barks at the most inopportune times always. And Sam Cat is our chief chaos agent, loudly knocking shit off the desk when he disagrees with me. 